Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Journalist Gracie Olmsted has written a new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of Places We've Left Behind, a memoir about growing up on a small family farm in Idaho. She examines the dynamic created when people move from small towns for greener pastures, better jobs in college, leaving behind others who must contend with thinning communities, punishing government farm policy and environmental decay. Our managing editor, Katie Daniels, recently got to talk with her. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Katie. Good to have you here on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Dominic. Good to be here. You got to talk with Gracie Olmsted about not just her book, but other things. So why don't you give us a little bit about what we're about to hear? Yes, of course. So I was super excited to talk to Gracie about her book because it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. She writes about agricultural practices and how they affect the environment and our food systems, but from a really unique perspective. Her family ran a farm in rural Idaho for many generations, and Gracie grew up there in this small town before moving out east to start a job and attend college and start a family And it's really interesting because it intertwines several stories. It's an account of the experience of owning and running a small family farm and how that's changed in Idaho and elsewhere since her great-grandparents began farming. It's also an examination of how these shifts in agriculture have affected the environment and food systems. And finally, it's a meditation on how to intentionally cultivate community, especially in rural areas where young people are often encouraged to move elsewhere. So that sounds really great. And I guess we should also point out, and I'll mention this at the end of the episode too, but Gracie's also got a book review in our October issue, which just went to press. Isn't that right? She does. And you can also find it on our website. It's about Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, which is a recent book from Princeton University Press on fracking in rural Pennsylvania. Okay, great. Well, why don't we listen to your uh, conversation? Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Dominic. So, of course, Uprooted is about, in part, your own family's history growing up and this farming town in Idaho. And something that really struck me was the statistic that you mentioned. So when the United States was founded, 90% of the population is living and working on a farm. And today, less than 2% of Americans do. So as someone whose grandfathers were farmers and who grew up in a farming community, what do you wish more Americans knew about farming? And perhaps why is farming so difficult to explain? That question is such a good one because due to the fact that so few people have any sort of actual connection to the farm, it is a concept and a a lifestyle and an industry that they're very removed from. And so I think because of that, there are a lot of stereotypes and misunderstandings when people think about farming. They always have a picture in their head. Oftentimes Super Bowl ads or others will will paint this very romantic picture of a mom and pop farm, very small, lots of animals, very old McDonald inspired. But most agriculture in the United States today is very large, very industrial. And usually farmers are doing only one or two things on that farm. And so the concept we might have in our heads is very different from the reality. And then of course, there's a set of policies and economic realities that influence that real picture then that they never truly see or understand. They don't understand how, for instance, the US Department of Agriculture has shaped the farming that we have today. They don't understand the ways in which 
we've treated and, and grown or depleted rural America, influencing what farming looks like today. And so I think that it's very important at the outset to understand how different true farming in America today is from that image and to also understand how much the way we eat today, the way that we form communities in rural America today, the way that rural towns are dying in many places are all influenced by the reality of what agriculture is. How do you see that lack of understanding of our land, of our food system, sort of specifically perhaps playing out in our political and economic life? Could you talk a little bit about what real farming looks like then, what this sort of industrial agriculture is like on the ground? Yes. So when we had more people in farming back in the day, you would have seen in America a lot of subsistence farming. You would have seen a lot of very diverse small farms throughout the United States. Of course, we also had industrialized farming in the form of the farming we saw in the South, and it used people in order to produce the amount of cotton and other crops such as tobacco and such that were produced in the South. And so slavery supported an early form of industrialized farming in the United States. But what we saw around the turn of the century and then on into the 20th century was an expansion of farming in which we saw less and less people farming the land, but focusing on more and more specialized crops, on cash crops, for instance, such as corn and soybeans. Farmers who are livestock farmers more and more were kind of concentrating their productions to raise one type of animal for meat or, for instance, for dairy. And whereas there would have been a cycle kind of of growth and of different kinds of animals on the farm prior to that point, more and more into this century, we've seen farmers focusing on one or two things, oftentimes to the detriment of soil health, of of the health of local animals, and even of their local communities. One other thing that is, I think, incredibly important to note is that farm and food workers have continued to be incredibly poorly treated, people of color and communities of color being impacted in the realm of agriculture. That's still a huge reality today. And whether it's the people working in meat processing plants or the people picking tomatoes on the actual farm, There's a lot of incredibly unjust practices that go toward producing a lot of cheap food in America today. Now, when we go to the grocery store, we don't necessarily see all of the process behind all of that. But people oftentimes know from food documentaries and from books and from other things that there are problems in our food system today. And so they they really have to rely on local branding and different things like USDA organic certification to try and make food choices that seem healthy for themselves and for their families. And the the sad and the difficult thing is that oftentimes it's difficult to know how true those actual labels are and whether they're giving us what we think they're giving us. There's just a lot of deception, whether meaningful or unintentional in our food system today. And so that can make it difficult for people to know whether what they're eating is as healthy as they might hope. And so I think that is one reason why I personally love the idea of buying local whenever you can, because there's an opportunity to go past the labels, past whatever in the store, and to actually form relationships with farmers themselves and to be able to see the health of what they're growing and of what they're doing. To expand on this idea of 
local relationships and having a relationship with the land. Your book, Uprooted, actually opens with a visit to a family graveyard in Emmett, Idaho, which is where multiple generations of your family have lived and where you grew up. You grew up surrounded by folks who committed themselves to this place for the long haul. And this stuck with me. You also write that now boom and bust cycles and the exodus of the young, including yourself, have worn down the threads of community and belonging. And so the theme sets up this tension kind of inherent in what Wallace Stegner once said were the United States' two archetypal populations, the boomers and the stickers. How do you define boomers and stickers? And how do you see their influence playing out in small towns like Emmett? Well, it's, it's a very helpful, I think, place to start thinking about boomers and stickers. But Wallace Stegner talked about the boomers as those who move into a place with the intention to, in his words, pillage and run. So they wanted to extract as much value and profit out of places as they could. And then when the goodness kind of ran out, when, for instance, the gold boom went bust, they moved on to the next one. And this is a pattern throughout the United States, really since our very beginnings of a country in a lot of ways, because we've always had a very, I think one could argue, exploitative relationship to land in the United States. And that has had a lot of horrific results throughout our history. But I think in the West, it's interesting how widespread it is and how much it has impacted the history of the West, which is where I grew up in Idaho. And so when you look at Idaho as a state, you see first white fur trappers coming through and the beaver population being almost driven to extinction. And then you see the gold boom and the silver boom and the gem boom and then other precious minerals. And in each and every instance, there would be this huge growth in the population. There would be a lot of people who grew rich in a short amount of time, and then things would inevitably dry up. And then you would see this huge growth in ghost towns, which you can still visit throughout a lot of the West. And in many places, a lot of huge ecological damage done as well. Um, I grew up not far from Sumter, Oregon, which is an area that experienced a huge gold boom and now is basically uninhabitable due to the damage that was done at that point. Timber was another one in the state's history that was very much exploited and had a huge impact. Even though we might move to a place and not be extracting resources, um, things like minerals or timber, we can have a very extractive attitude as modern Americans. We can still say, what is this place going to give me? How is it going to enrich me? And not have an attitude of investment. And that is what differentiates the boomers from the stickers in Wallace Stegner's mind were those who moved to a place with a determination to settle there, to invest there, to be good neighbors, to be good citizens, and to seek to grow the health of that community. And that is really, I think one could argue the calling of a sticker is to move into a place and to love it and make it better for your presence, no matter how long you get to live there. Your great grandpa, one of the book's most, I thought, like finely drawn characters, um, was by all accounts both a sticker and an agricultural innovator. For instance, on his farm, he's using cows, not chemicals, to keep overgrowth at bay. And he also worked out an irrigation system to prevent water runoff. So both things very ahead of their time. And you've written elsewhere that 
how we farm matters. And Much of Uprooted then chronicles these extractive agricultural practices that deplete both the soil and ultimately the people who farm it. What policies or practices do you think would be most effective at creating a more sustainable culture of farming for both the land and the people? The one that takes into account what Wendell Berry might say is the old link and the old reverence. Hmm. When you look at policies that we have in place at present, they incentivize a style of agriculture that does not care for land or respect those ties in any meaningful way. And so to first think about where we need to go, I think it's good to perhaps have a a picture of where we're at. And so if you look at the farm bill, for instance, subsidies and other forms of financial support that we give farmers usually go towards those who are doing, once again, huge monocrop sort of operations. Although we've done some work, I think, to try and reverse what we see in agriculture today, I would say the amount of funds that go toward agricultural reform are just infinitesimal compared to the amount that go toward supporting and bolstering the system that we currently have. And in agriculture today, it is very easy to get government support for kind of maintaining the status quo. It's also very easy to get financial support aimed at conservation but the amount of oversight that then goes into that is, is pretty small. So for instance, you can get some sort of agricultural easement that says this land is not going to be developed. We're going to keep it as agricultural land. You can also get various supports for not farming on or not growing a specific crop on a certain piece of land for letting it lie fallow. But the interesting thing is with a conservation easement, for instance, someone could just monocrop corn on that for multiple years. And and that would still qualify them for this payment, which once again, isn't very good for the soil itself. It's not conserving it in any sort of meaningful way. And I think too, that with the various supports for letting land lie fallow, there's been a lot of pushback in agricultural experts who say, "We, we really need to just start regulating farming in a way that we haven't up to this point. It's one thing to give people money for doing bad things, and then to give them money for doing one good thing on maybe 5% of their land. But what would it look like if we actually did something meaningful to try and say, we will have more oversight in the way that land is treated in the United States, and we're not going to let you just do whatever you want. Of course, this makes a lot of libertarians and Republicans a little more uncomfortable because of the growth of the regulatory state that would represent But the thing that I think is important to note is just that for the last several decades, probably more for the last century, we've given farmers all sorts of handouts to grow things in a way that has just continued to have a hugely detrimental impact on soil, on water, on local community, and thus also on on the health, both in the present moment and going forward of, of the land and of people who rely on that land. And so I do think it's possible that some drastic measures might be necessary to kind of reverse that. So whether that's regulating what farmers can grow where and and what chemicals even they use, whether it's actually trying to support more young farmers and more farmers of color who have not been allowed to farm or whose land was taken from them in the early 20th century, There's a lot of things we could do or could consider doing that could, I think, build a little more health into 
our systems of agriculture in the United States right now. Do you think that people are starting to have a better understanding of like how these systems are? Because I, I feel like there's been perhaps more of a move towards you know, understanding the importance of, say, shopping locally, eating organic, you know, especially during the pandemic when we saw very visibly these supply chains breaking down or forced to ask for the first, maybe for the first time, like where are all these things coming from? Do you see people starting to make perhaps the connection at a policy level? I think so. And I think that's a really good point because you did see a lot of people realizing in the midst of 2020, oh, the, the problem with efficiency is that it can create these systems that are very brittle, that can easily break down with one of the great things that we celebrate about the American food system is that it's so efficient. But then, of course, you get to this point where farmers are harvesting potatoes that they can't get to market and that are just languishing on the side of the road. Or you have farmers euthanizing hogs because it literally isn't worth it for them to keep those hogs for another two, three weeks until they can find a market for them when their their producer, their distributor is lost. And so the the amount of waste, the amount of death, the amount of illness that was caused last year because of our efficient food system, I think was a huge wake-up call for a lot of people. And so I think the difficulties we're experiencing right now is that where local agriculture, local direct-to-consumer agriculture exists, it's oftentimes too expensive for a lot of people who are more economically insecure. And it it isn't producing a huge profit, actually, for a lot of the people who are engaged in it. It's still a system that has a lot of anxiety and stress built into it. And so we're trying to think at this point, how can we make this more accessible? How can we make it more profitable? How can we make it so that the people who are, once again, working, not owning farms, but are working on the farm or who are working within the food system are being justly treated and, and earning a fair wage? And so there's a lot of, I think, really interesting and good writing and thought being done on this. A lot of people thinking about how collaborative farms, so farms where they're employee-owned as opposed to more of a single family or a single person-owned system, could actually guarantee better benefits and better wages for all of the people involved in the farm. There's also just a lot of stuff that would need to be done and we need to consider in terms of changing the model of, once again, processing and distribution so that people who are smaller can get their product to market without the huge costs built in. That's that's one of the reasons it is so expensive oftentimes to get something that's not made or produced or, or packaged or distributed through the commodity system. If we had more local slaughterhouses, more local packing houses, that we're working with these smaller producers, it might actually ease the burden of cost both for them and for us, and thus also have an impact on that price. And you saw a lot of those operations actually being formed, local co-ops and other things being formed during the pandemic. And if those continue to grow and spread, I think that would also have a really good impact on connecting consumers with good healthy, local food produced in a way that is more just and fair. In Uprooted, you write, as we've talked about, not just about extractive agricultural practices, but also about what you call an extractive mentality. So one that sort of treats rural towns and their residents as interchangeable and expendable. So there's an economic question here, of course, but it seems to me there's also one of worthiness or value. 
how do you think about reframing the way we talk about choosing to stay and build a life in these rural communities and small towns? And perhaps uh, what examples of this did you encounter in, in researching Uprooted? One thing I've been very inspired by is the book by Charles Kamosi titled, I think, Fighting Throwaway Culture. And what he does in that book is he looks at the the writing and the teaching of Pope Francis and others who've identified the ways in which our culture has treated people first and foremost, but but also places as something to be consumed and or treated as interchangeable or expendable. There's a lot of research that has been done into what's called the brain drain in rural America, where basically the young people who graduate from high school who perhaps have received a lot of investment, perhaps the most investment in these local communities, then leave for college and never come back. And when this happens generation after generation, businesses eventually die out. There's not a lot of new commerce coming in. A lot of local downtowns will start to empty out. A lot of churches will empty out. Local high schools close down. The impact is society-wide, but I think a lot of it can be traced back once again to the incentives we listen to as a culture, the values that we hold dear, and to the throwaway culture that tells us that basically we should only live in a place if it's doing something for us. Something that stood out to me reading the book was the, the people you were talking to who perhaps decided to stay in Emmett or another small town and perhaps continue keeping the family farm running or to start another business to stay and invest their lives in their communities often were on the receiving end of a narrative of you were stuck, you didn't make it out. And it, it, it seemed to me like it was almost reframing the sticker narrative, right? Like it, it's warping in a way, like we don't think of it as a good thing anymore necessarily to stick when in fact it can be, as you say, a way of learning to love and appreciating where you are in, in the world and, and what can you bring to it. I was stuck on that. I think that's such a good point. So one thing I talk about in the book is how there's all of these different cultural cues that we have that emphasize success is a very transitory thing. So for instance, if you've ever heard someone say, oh, you'll go far, um, that's a term that we use for high school graduates and others who are very bright and talented. Or we say that someone's settled when they haven't achieved their full potential, actually. And so I think these ideas and these concepts, one could argue, are, are speaking more of perhaps also spiritual and intellectual growth. There's a journey that we go on in, in those senses that is important. But in America, I would argue that it's also often geographic. And in their book, Hollowing Out the Middle, Patrick Carr and Maria Kafalas did a huge study on brain drain, and they spent a long time living in this one town in Iowa chronicling the process. And the very interesting thing that they saw was that a lot of parents and high school counselors and teachers would identify very bright young people and then push them to leave. They actually were telling these young people that if they were bright and successful, then they would not stay in, in small town Iowa. There was no vocabulary. There was no set of principles that kind of encouraged those young people to invest their talents in their local community. And I contrasted that with what I saw in my great-grandfather, that he really saw value in sticking. He really believed he could build a successful and a profitable and a fruitful life in one place. And he actually died 
in the same kind of probably 20 mile radius where he was born, which I don't think probably hardly ever happens in America today. And if and when it does, it, it definitely wouldn't be a sign for a lot of people of a life well lived, of a life that was successful. I do think it's important to note that there are a lot of people, I would argue, who are stuck in the sense that they don't choose to stay in a place, but because they don't receive the investment, they don't have the the social or the financial capital of their peers, they don't get any other choice. They really are stuck. And so I do think that there are times and places in which leaving a place behind could be salutary for a group of Americans who never get that chance. And so then the question becomes, are there ways in which we can help them move to healthier situations? And I think even more important, are there ways in which we can make that local community healthier so that staying then becomes once again, something that is a sign of success or of fruitfulness in that community and not just a sign of stuckness. That actually leads very perfectly into my next and final question for you, because as someone with very deep ties to her community, to Emmett, who nevertheless did choose to relocate and settle elsewhere for school and, and to raise a family on the East Coast, how did writing and researching this book inform your conception of indebtedness, right? What we as the younger generation might owe the past and the places that we're from. It's an interesting thing to talk about because most people in America today probably don't see themselves as indebted to anyone or to any place. And there, there is a form of privilege in the sense that I received, I have a wonderful family. I grew up in a very safe community and I received so many opportunities to grow and flourish in that place. That's a privilege a lot of people don't have. But privilege is another word for, I think, then indebtedness. And what it does is it emphasizes the fact that as a result of receiving those gifts, I now have a responsibility with what I do with them. And I can do my utmost to share them with others and to give back to the community that raised me so that others growing up there now hopefully have the same set of opportunities. So that the fact that I received so much from the past and from place that was invested in me from the people who lived there, that all of those blessings, all of those opportunities don't die out in my lifetime. I think that's really hard to do from a distance. I don't think it's impossible, but I do think it is a hard debt to pay back from afar. And this book was the beginning of an effort to consider what it looks like to practice gratitude and to give something back in a way that's meaningful to a place and to a people that you feel a strong sense of kinship and and have strong ties to. So when I looked at the lives of my great-grandparents, for example, I saw just a strong sense of civic indebtedness and leadership that informed the way they lived. They were so involved in local associations, in their local church, and in local philanthropic efforts, all of which we're once again building a sense of communal fabric and, and a sense of interdependence and support that then helped present and future generations in the place where they lived. And so I think a lot of us young people could also consider the ways in which that sort of membership is just building up treasures for the next generation, building up a sense of depth and love and interdependence that will help another set of young people. I think that's oftentimes a sign of health in community is does the 20-year-old and the 30-year-old want to stay here and live here? Do they feel like they could raise a family here? 
Do they feel like they could have a healthy, productive life in this place? And to the extent that those things don't exist or don't happen, how can we begin to make them happen? How can we invest in this community in a way that that makes those possibilities? Thank you for, for ending with that note. And thank you for joining us on the Commonweal podcast today, Gracie. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for wanting to talk about the book. So as we noted, Gracie Olmsted also has a review in our October issue, the Fall Books issue, which just went to press, and which also includes articles and essays from Massimo Fagioli, Matthew Sipman, Phil Cly, and Pope Francis, plus a photo essay from Afghanistan by Somez Dariani and poetry by Danielle Chapman. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.